Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Friday, July the 28th. In this week's podcast, we're talking about celiac disease. We're publishing a seminar, very much an up-to-date analysis of where we are with important messages for clinicians treating the disease. I'm delighted to be joined on the line from Columbia University in New York by Professor Peter Green. Peter, hi, come in. What is your full uh, title and affiliation, please? I'm the Phyllis and Ivan Seidenberg Professor of Medicine at Columbia University, and I'm the director of the Celiac Disease Center here in New York. Thanks, Richard, for inviting me the seminar in The Lancet I did with my co-authors, Ben Lebwell from Columbia University and David Sanders from Sheffield. Let's kick off with a bit of the epidemiology. When did we first really know about celiac disease and what can you tell us about global instance and prevalence and that sort of thing? Celiac disease has actually been known for a long time. There are references way back in ancient times that have been attributed to a diagnosis of celiac disease. And then in the 1800s in the UK, there was an interest in it. In the late 30s and 40s, Dr. Dickey from Amsterdam actually worked out that it was the protein component of wheat that was causing the issue. And children used to be put on a banana diet to diagnose celiac disease. However, the epidemiology has changed uh, considerably, as has the modes of clinical presentation. It used to be a pediatric malabsorption syndrome. Now it's a disease that can affect men and women at any age, the young through to the elderly. One of the difficulties with the diagnosis is that the clinical manifestations are so diverse that almost anyone walking into a doctor's office could have celiac disease suspected as the underlying cause of a whole spectrum of symptoms. It's interesting in that the condition appears to have quite markedly increased four to five fold over the last 50 to 60 years and may be leveling off now. So that raises the issue of what the possible causes or the triggers of the disease. Currently, it's thought to be about 1% of the population worldwide and it occurs in both developed and underdeveloped countries. There's evidence that there may be less in underdeveloped countries, but in areas like the Middle East, North Africa, Northern India, it's quite prevalent. So it's a disorder that can affect anyone in any place. The etiological factors include these Northern European genes, these HLA genes that you've got to have to have the disorder. Yes, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. And, and there's a great deal of detail in the seminar itself, your paper, which we won't go into now. But the, the basic underlying genetic, it's to do with the HLA-DQ gene, isn't it? These major histocompatibility genes, you've got to have HLA-DQ2 or DQ8. But 30 to 40% of the population have it. So it's a prerequisite. It's necessary. The by far the bulk of people with those genes don't actually have celiac disease, but virtually everyone with celiac disease does have these genes. And what do we know about, apart from the okay, the, the genetic um, prerequisites that you've just described, what, what, what about other risk factors? You've got to have the genes and you've got to be eating gluten. Gluten is the trigger and withdrawal of gluten reverses the condition. Say 40% of us have the genes, 98% of us are eating gluten, but only 1% get celiac disease. So this suggests that there are 
important environmental factors and there's a lot of work trying to decide what they are because if we can identify them then we can possibly reverse this trend for increasing prevalence of celiac disease. Some of the risk factors appear to be like gastro developing gastroenteritis like rotavirus in children or Campylobacter gastroenteritis in adults increases the risk. Various medications increase the risk such as the use of antibiotics or proton pump inhibitors. The main risk factor appears to be being, having a family member. If there's a member of the family with celiac disease, then other family members have about a 10% chance. It also runs along with other autoimmune conditions, such conditions as type 1 diabetes, Sjogren's syndrome, or autoimmune liver diseases also have a very high risk of having the disorder. Because actually, um, again, without getting too bogged down in the detail, uh, immunologically, that's what's happening with celiac sufferers, isn't it? Is that they're getting a, a disrupted immune response. They're getting a very pro-inflammatory response, aren't they? And that causes damage in the villi, doesn't it, in the small intestine? Yes, the, the bulk of us tolerate gluten, like we tolerate the foreign proteins in our diet and we tolerate all the bacteria that we ingest, but something happens to the immune system of individuals who get celiac disease that they lose their tolerance, they become intolerant to gluten and they develop one of these chronic autoimmune type inflammatory processes in the intestine. The symptoms may be intestinal but what's striking about celiac disease is the extra-intestinal manifestations, fatigue, peripheral neuropathy, anemia, osteoporosis. These can be prominent or even the only manifestations of the condition. Let's talk a little bit about diagnosis because this is of absolute key relevance to clinicians. This is quite a complex disease because we're talking about symptoms that often relate to, to, to the gut and the gastrointestinal system. It's not straightforward to diagnose, is it? What's, what are your views on, on diagnosis? Well, actually, the diagnosis is pretty straightforward. The major barrier appears to be physicians thinking of the condition because there's a high rate of underdiagnosis and the underdiagnosis is typically a delay in the physician considering the diagnosis. Once the diagnosis is considered, the blood tests are very good. This tissue transglutaminase IgA antibody has a very high sensitivity and specificity. What's recommended is if that antibody is positive, patients are referred for endoscopic biopsy because we prefer to make the diagnosis when there is evidence of damage. Blood tests can be very good, but they are not 100%. So that's why a positive blood test should prompt a referral to a gastroenterologist for a duodenal biopsy. And one of the reasons for that, Richard, is actually because if you diagnose celiac disease, you're committing the individual to a lifelong restrictive diet and the diet is uh, got like social Im implications financial implications so we like to be pretty certain of the diet and what we don't favor is someone saying oh you should try a gluten-free diet and see if you get better because there's a very great placebo response when people change their diet Yes, that's interesting. And as you say, it's pretty brutal in a sense, isn't it? A gluten-free diet in terms of compliance to a gluten-free diet. That is challenging. But what other options are there in addition to the gluten-free diet? 
The fact that there's a lot of knowledge now about the immunological mechanisms by which gluten causes disorder, that's led to the development of potential therapies apart from the diet. And it's very exciting because there's been quite a, an interest and a push to develop a therapy because patients want it. Patients are actually quite desperate to get a therapy. And the main lines of therapy are the development of enzymes or binders that will inactivate gluten. Another line of therapy is a medication, a small molecule that appears to block gluten getting through the barrier of the intestinal mucosa. And then there are other potential therapies such as the development of vaccines. And these three lines of therapy are actually marching through the process. As you know, it costs about a billion dollars to get a drug on the market. And between drug discovery and the market takes about 10 years. So it's a big effort and there's a like a big push and so there's quite a few little pharma companies that are like working away at trying to do these drug studies to get a potential therapy on the market. Interestingly, the therapies are going to be designed initially to help people with a gluten-free diet because it's very hard to be totally compliant and because gluten is being stuck in, it sneaks into the diet in many, many different ways. So pretty difficult for individuals to maintain this this uh, rigid strict gluten-free diet actually. And just going back to the point you made about diagnosis and the message for clinicians if a clinician in primary care thinks hang on this could be celiac do you think there should be greater awareness for them to to refer them on? That's what's recommended currently there are European guidelines for making the diagnosis in children without a biopsy those guidelines are quite strict and we're finding that they're not being adhered to. So it's like a strongly positive tissue transfuse glutaminase antibody and then a repeat positive antibody performed at a different time because in at-risk individuals you can get this temporary gluten autoimmunity. So in a relatively asymptomatic child, one positive TTG antibody level would not be enough to, to, to tell the parents to put the child on a gluten-free diet. So in childhood, there are these uh, criteria for making the diagnosis without biopsy, but they have not been extrapolated to adults, even though there's a suggestion that you could do that. One of the reasons we like to do a biopsy is to get a baseline, because about up to 30% of individuals don't have an optimal response to the gluten-free diet. So it's good to have a baseline so we know what's going on in follow-up. Looking ahead, I mean, we've already touched on this, but how, how would you see, say, the next decade in this area in celiac disease? What are the priorities? Better compliance to gluten-free or acceleration of research towards the therapeutics? You know, I think uh, increased awareness amongst uh, primary care doctors leading to earlier diagnosis, the development of therapies, and then the potential for prevention of this condition. You know, if it's gone up four to five fold in the last 50 years, we don't know where it's heading, especially if like 40% of us have these genes. So it is an emerging disorder along with other autoimmune conditions and people are living longer, People are taking a lot of different medications. So I think as well as developing a potential therapy, there's a potential for uh, prevention 
of the condition. That should be a direction of uh, future research. Fascinating point on which to end. I'm sure we'll be returning to this quite widespread disease, that is celiac disease. But in the meantime, Peter Green on the line from Columbia University, New York. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet and thanks for your great seminar. Thank you, Richard.